If you have your Bibles, you're going to want to have them open tonight um, because, partially because, besides that verse, I didn't get the rest of them on slides tonight. That's my bad. So you have Bibles, right? I think there's probably one in front of you if you don't. Um, yeah. Tonight, my goal, what we're going to do is we are going to look at what happened post-exile. So we spent the last several months, really, walking through the book of Daniel and looking at what we were looking at is, is how to live as faithful exiles. What does it look like to be faithful while in exile? So we walked through that for several months, and now we come to this point in Daniel's history and in, in the Jewish history where they're going home. They're returning so I kind of want to, we're going to take like a 30,000 foot, this is just like a high level survey of Ezra and Nehemiah tonight, more than anything. Remember that at the beginning of the book of Daniel, do you guys remember how long ago that was? A long time ago. We looked at what led them, led the Israelites into exile. The Jewish people, after many many repeated warnings after and after, many attempts at renewal, many uh, prophecies. They were spiritually, morally, ethically bankrupt. They were worshiping other gods. They were neglecting the Torah. They were not following God. They were living ultimately just like everyone else. So just as the Lord had said he would do, he raised up Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, and they came in, and in multiple sweeps, he led the people off into exile. You can go back in the podcast and listen to more on that. They should have known it was coming. They should have been aware of the fact that that was coming. The prophets had given many warnings. Isaiah and Jeremiah specifically were pretty clear, at least in our hindsight reading. Jeremiah 25 very clearly prophesies a 70-year exile. Remember, we looked when we went through Daniel 9 that this prophecy was the prophecy that Daniel was reading when he was an old man in Babylon. He goes back and he's reading this prophecy and he begins to pray that the Lord, it had been 70 years. God, when is this going to end? When is exile going to end? When are you going to send us home? He begins to pray and to fast and to repent on behalf of his people. And at that point, you'll remember there was an angel that came to Daniel and brought clarity to the prophecy. Seventy years they would be in Babylon, in this exile, but truly the, the exile was 70 times seven. Much longer, much longer than they had initially thought. So then they return. What happens next? Where does this story go? We know, and we've looked at this the last several weeks, Daniel stays behind in Babylon there's apparently a whole crew of 
the exiled that choose to stay back in Babylon. Some go back, but surprisingly, not all of them. This is, this is interesting to me that 70 years must have just been a long time. I think the intention of 70 years is probably that's it. this is an entire generation has gone by. And they were doing what they were told to do. They had planted gardens. They had established households. They had married and given their children into marriage. They were praying for the good of the city. They had established lives in Babylon. Babylon had become their home. So not all of them return, but some do. And we have the stories of their return in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Interestingly, these two books, they really, in the, we have them as two books in your Bible, but in the original, they were combined as one scroll, Ezra and Nehemiah, as one collective thought. Therefore, I would suggest if you're going to read Ezra, you also read Nehemiah. You kind of need both to finish the story. The story continues into what we know as the like intertestamental period. We, we know more about that from the stories that are collected in the Apocrypha, um, which are worthwhile reading, but not, we're not holding them as authoritative scripture. We've referenced those several times in the last few weeks of our studies, the Maccabean Revolt and things that happened in that time period. But tonight, really, my goal is to walk through Ezra and Nehemiah, kind of get a bird's-eye view of what happened. What their return from exile looked like and what that meant for them as Jews returning to their land. So I was thinking about this. Have you ever, have you ever been really, really looking forward to something or wanting to get something accomplished? You've planned for it, you've prepped for it, you've put in work, you're hoping that something gets done, and things just don't go as planned. Anybody else, or is it just me? <laughs> I feel like this, I was thinking about this this week, I, I'm swapping a water pump on, on an old van, and, and uh, despite all the planning, knowing how to do it, having the right parts, a stinking bolt shears off. Things just don't go as planned. I feel like every time I work on a car, it's kind of like that. But <clears throat> anybody else? I'm not cursed. Good. Uh, many of us have probably felt that way about the past few years. I mean, honestly, we made plans. We, we thought things were going to go a certain way. Then the world shut down and things got crazy and conflicted and people started hating each other more than they did before. Like, things got weird. That's kind of what happens in this story. It's kind of how this story goes. There's lots of hope, lots of expectation as to how things are going to go as these uh, exiles begin to return, but that doesn't quite go as planned things don't go quite as smoothly as they had hoped for. So tonight, like I said, it's, a, it's an overview, but really you should read these books. 
It won't take you long to read Ezra and Nehemiah. It would be worth a read. Just in, with all of this that we've done through Daniel, it would be worth reading what happens next. So these stories, if you go look for books about Ezra and Nehemiah, they're usually examples of how to lead a renewal or like their character studies on how to lead revival or how to, how to create momentum for your next church building project. Those are the kinds of like 14 lessons in leadership from Nehemiah. Those are the kinds of things you get out of these books. But I believe they're more than that. I think they're more than just leadership lessons or character studies. These are narratives that we have in the scripture that are intended to form us. They're intended to form us into more closely into the image of Jesus, to lead us to look for and to long for Jesus. They're not just character studies uh, that we're looking for. It's like a simple building model for leadership. It's not just like an ancient version of a Christian self-help book. I think that's the way a lot of people look at these books, but they're more than that. The biblical literature here, these narratives, they don't communicate by offering just simple answers or moral examples or pictures. These characters, really in all of the Bible, all of the biblical narratives, these guys are full of flaws and issues. Every one of them is not perfect. Every one of them has, it's a mixed bag You're getting good and bad. You're getting positive and negative. Just like us. It's a mix of success and failure. They're not necessarily examples of how we should try to live our life or how we should lead or how we should make things happen. We'll see that as we get into the story. Like, they make some pretty big mistakes. So let's jump in. Ezra chapter 1. We read this passage Uh, Ezra 1, looking at 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, And he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with them and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. That's pretty amazing. We looked at Cyrus a little bit. During our study of Daniel, you guys remember talking about Cyrus a couple times? Yeah, we're closer now, so we can respond, yeah? Ezra says, this was all to fulfill the words of Jeremiah, of the prophet Jeremiah. This was all to fulfill, namely, that 70-year prophecy from Jeremiah 25. But interestingly, this guy, this Cyrus character, was very clearly predicted elsewhere. In Isaiah, 
He's even mentioned by name, probably 150 years before he came onto the scene. Let's look at that. Isaiah 44, 28. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to read it quick, though. Isaiah 44, 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. It's 150 years before Cyrus was there. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to, sub to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. That's pretty amazing, right? But it's not just how accurate it is. The language around the way Cyrus is described is kind of striking. He is called Yahweh's shepherd, a pastor of Yahweh. He is called Messiah. He's given the royal identity of Messiah, the anointed one. This is a foreign, pagan, Persian king. And he's called the anointed one. Obviously, he's not the ultimate anointed one, capital T. But he is an anointed one. He is a Messiah figure. He is a type and a shadow. He points us to the ultimate fulfillment of Christ. He will, as a tool in the hand of the Lord... He will send the people back and begin the process of restoring the temple and the place where God can meet with his people again. The exile's over. Hooray, they're going home. This probably, this, I'm sure, this would have triggered all sorts of of hope and expectations for multiple levels of fulfillment to begin to happen. That type of a prophecy being so clearly fulfilled, I'm sure they'd be looking for the other fulfillments. They're looking for their messianic king. They're looking for the hope of God's presence, his new temple. They're looking for God's kingdom and rule to extend over all the earth, over all the nations. They're looking ultimately for the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that he would use his people to bring about all of that. Blessings of the nations. This is what they've been wanting, waiting for, for a very long time. Could this be? They're returning. Cyrus is here. He's sending them to go and rebuild the temple. Cyrus gives a charge to the people. Sends them home. Not only are they to go home, but they're supposed to rebuild the temple. They're supposed to restore correct worship of Yahweh. So the first group of exiles begins this process. They begin to journey home. They're led by a man named Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's name means planted in Babylon. Zerubbabel. He represents 
this generation that was born in captivity, planted in Babylon. Born in captivity, born in exile. They go back to rebuild the altar. They restore sacrifices. Eventually, their goal is to rebuild the temple. But things don't go as planned. They never do. When they complete the foundation of the temple, they begin a, a celebration to commiserate not commit, to, uh, to celebrate their accomplishments. <laughs> yes. Let's look at this part of the story. Ezra chapter 3. Ezra 3, we're going to start in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests... And their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. They're singing psalms of David. And all the people shouted with great shouts, when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house had been laid. And then there's verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. So they're celebrating. They're celebrating this this generation of Zerubbabel that was planted in Babylon is celebrating the foundation of this temple being restored and the beginning of the process of the restoration of worship. The dedication should bring back memories of previous dedications of this temple or tabernacle. Leviticus 9, there was the tabernacle was dedicated. I'm just going to read it. Leviticus 9, 23, 24. Let's look at what happened. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. And all the people saw it. And they shouted and fell on their faces. Again, in 1 Kings, when Solomon's temple is dedicated, look at what happened. 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In both of these previous dedications, the glory of God came in such a way that everybody knew it. The glory, of the, God, the glory of the Lord came, but not this time. They're celebrating this foundation and this temple, this dedication of the temple, but the old people, they know God's not here. This is not the same. 
The old men recognize this. It's interesting to me as I've been thinking this through, these old guys, sorry, is that derogatory? These old, older gentlemen, uh, <laughs> they're probably Daniel's age. They were probably children when the exile began. And what was the state of the temple when they were carried off into exile? Was it glorious? No. It wasn't. Somehow they knew, though, that this is not the same. The temple they knew as children before they were carried off to Israel was full of just complacency and of sin and even false, false God worship. There was, it, was, it, was, it was a mess. But somehow they knew this is different. God's not here. It's a far cry from the glory that we read about in those two other dedications. And yet... Glory wasn't there. It was not the same way. It seems to me, like at least for these elders, their hopes of fulfillment of all those other promises that went along with their leaving Babylon, maybe they're feeling like maybe their hopes were in vain. If God's not here, if he's not showing up in glory like he did in those previous times, Maybe all of this is in vain. And then there's opposition to the work. And the story's fascinating, actually, if you read it. Other Israelites, apparently those who uh, had not been taken off into, into exile, they come to offer help only be, to be turned away by Zerubbabel, to be sent off. The story then jumps forward several decades 60, 70 years, somewhere in there. To a man named Ezra. This is another Persian king. Another Persian king comes on the scene. And he commissions, he sends another wave of exiles back home. This time under the leadership of a man named Ezra. Ezra was... We know from chapter 7, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. He was, uh, Ezra 7 verse 10 says that he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to, and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules to Israel. Ezra was a Bible guy. He's a Torah guy. Student of the scripture. His goal in returning was to bring about a spiritual and a social renewal amongst God's people. Maybe that would fix the problem. The glory's not there, but maybe if we fix this, this problem and we bring about some spiritual renewal, God would come. And then all those other promises would be fulfilled. Maybe the glory would fall and things would get put back into motion. 
And things start out okay. They start out going to, as planned. But Ezra discovers quickly the people are not living faithful to the law of the Torah. They're not being faithful. Some of them, apparently, and the story's interesting, some of them had married foreign women, which he saw as a direct, direct, directly going against the Torah, a major violation, and uh, he sets to deal with that. Most people see Ezra as the foundation or the father of the Pharisees. And you'll begin to see why here as we look at this. He represents a way of thinking that began and formed the way the Pharisees were even into Jesus' day. He's, he thinks like this. We ended up in exile. This whole mess started because we were unfaithful. Because we didn't live faithfully the Torah and we didn't follow faithfully after Yahweh. And clearly, even though they're back in the land, things are not going well. So in his mind, the only way to fix things is to bring about, restore faithfulness to Torah, to the law. And he and the Pharisees after him went through great lengths to get people to try to live and pursue holiness. To try to pursue faithfulness to the way of God. So Ezra commands these men who had married these foreign wives, foreign wives to divorce them and to send them off with their children even. That was not something the Lord told him to do. In fact, a contemporary prophet says God hates divorce. But Ezra forces this, sends them away, in an effort to try to force the people into faithfulness. Essentially, what he was trying to do is what we call fencing the law. They build a, this is what the Pharisees in Jesus' time did. They build a fence around the law or the commandments so that you couldn't even get close to breaking them. So if you think about this, so if you think about my little guy, Jethro, if I don't want him to sin by disobeying me and touching a fire we're camping, if I don't want him to sin and hurt himself, uh, if to, to fence that, now I'm going to say, okay, Jethro, you can't even get within six feet of that fire. You know what? Actually, that's not even good enough. I'm going to take this fire pit and I'm going to build it up three feet tall so you can't even see it. That's not even good enough. Now I'm going to take, and we're not going to have a fire. I'm just going to put a laptop there with a video of a fire. You know what? That actually might cause you to think that you want to do this. So we're actually not even going to have that. We're just going to try to have a fire in our heart, Jethro. It's silly, but that's kind of what this is. That's kind of how this works. I mean, he wasn't being that silly about it. He's actually sending women off to <laughs> go fend for themselves. But they build fences around the Torah, trying to force everybody to where they didn't even have a choice but to be faithful. That was their goal. 
And yet nothing changed. Nothing changed. Enter Nehemiah. Look at that. We just covered a whole book. Sort of. Half a book in the scrolls. Nehemiah is an Israelite officer serving in the Persian government. And he hears about the state of his homeland and he asks if he can go and help. This is interesting because he's specifically focused on rebuilding the walls around the city. You guys know these stories. You just read your Bibles. He's focused on rebuilding the walls around the cities. This is fascinating to me because a contemporary, prophet Zechariah, said this about the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 2, 4, and 5. He said, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Jerusalem, according to Zechariah, should not even have walls. This should be a place that is open for the multitudes to come to Yahweh. But as we all do, Nehemiah takes things sort of into his own hands. It's kind of the lesson here with Nehemiah. He's sent back with an armed caravan, armed guards, to go and rebuild this wall. Just as Ezra and Zerubbabel had done before him, there is, or just as had happened with them, there's opposition, both from without, and then there's failure from within. The story just kind of repeats itself. The next part of the story is really, it forms the high point of these narratives. This is the part that most of those books about revival and, and leadership are written about. The walls are finished, and in Nehemiah chapter 8 through 12, we see Ezra and Nehemiah joining forces to lead this sort of revival, sort of. They gather all the people, and they begin to read and explain and exposit the Torah, the law. This is really good stuff. Ezra chapter 8 you can turn there, eight, chapter 8, verse 2 through 3, says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, seventh month and he read from it facing the square before the water gate, And early in the morning until midday. So he's just reading the Bible from early in the morning until midday. In the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Jump down to verse 5 here. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people. For he was above all the people. And he opened it, opened it all Uh, As he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Yeshua and Bani and all these guys, the Levites, helped 
for the people, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book and from the law of God clearly and gave it the sense. The NIV there says they made it clear, or the CSB says they translated it so that the people could understand what they were reading. As a Bible teacher, guys, this is, this is like, I love this stuff. This is what they did. They opened the Torah, they read it, and they made it easy to understand. They exposited the scriptures. And they did it for like seven days straight. They just read the Bible and explained it. They celebrated the Feast of Booths. They re- brought back these feasts, these festivals. This particular was the Jewish celebration where they remembered and celebrated how God had provided for them in the desert in their wandering after the exodus. Things seemed to be good. They seemed to be going well. The people confess their sin. The people vow themselves to renew their covenant, to follow the commands of the Torah. Things are looking up. The people are working hard to pursue faithfulness. They're celebrating. They're worshiping. This is a joyous moment in their history. And yet, chapter 13 happens. In chapter 13, Nehemiah discovers the people are not fulfilling their covenant vow that they had just made. The temple is neglected. The people are violating the Torah. They're they're disregarding and dishonoring the Sabbath. The walls that they had just celebrated the rebuilding of are being turned into a marketplace, and people are working on the Sabbath and disregarding all that they had just accomplished. Nehemiah, again, seems to take things into his own hands. The story here tells, I think, more of a realistic picture than we think of religious people who are zealous to help others see the Word of God in a new way. They're full of passion. They love God. They'll do everything in their power to lead their people into this new era of devotion. Try to bring about the restoration that God had promised. But it doesn't work. The story ends with Nehemiah in angry tears. It ends with him beating Israelites and pulling out their hair because they won't be faithful. Seriously, that's Nehemiah 13, 24. He says, And half of their children spoke in the language, uh, 25. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I don't think that's in the leadership books. But that's how Nehemiah, Nehemiah deals with this. I don't think that's the, that's the leadership lesson for us. The reason for that is that I think the message of the story is kind of opposite. In reality, this is a picture. It's a sobering picture for us 
that no leader, no person, no effort of mankind can bring about the full realization of the hopes and the longings for the restoration of all things. The hopes and the dreams that they had when they left Babylon, no leader could make that happen. Even when they tried, they worked, they prayed, even when they had all the money and power to do it, they couldn't do it. Every time things seemed to be going right in this story, there was opposition from without and there was failure from within. And it should, this should lead us to take a step back, to, to meditate and to think about what the Lord is trying to teach us through these stories. We know why the Israelites ended up in Babylon. We know why. We know that according to the prophets, it was the result of centuries of abandoning Yahweh and going after, chasing after other gods. We know that they had allowed Torah unfaithfulness, social injustice. They were going after other things. The prophet said, and it was true, this was the just consequence. Good fathers discipline their sons. That's how the New Testament tells the story. Israel was being disciplined. But that's not the end of the story. Exile is not the end of the story. God was going to fulfill his great promise to Abraham. He is working that plan. Divine blessing is going to come through this rebellious nation. They had to get back into their land. God was going to bring a remnant back, and he was going to make them the epicenter of what he was about to do on the earth. His effort, his mission to bring about peace and restoration. So as we looked at Ezra, our hopes were really high. Our longing for, to see the fulfillment of what God was going to do only be let down. We think over and over, that, oh, this is it. This is it. Maybe this is it. The people are vowing to be faithful. They're recommitting themselves. They're going back to the word of God. There should be expectation this whole time you're reading through Ezra and Nehemiah. At every turn in this story, though, it doesn't go as planned. There's failure. When the new temple is rebuilt, while many people are thrilled, those who remember the old temple weep. There's this massive gap between their expectations and their longings for the fulfillment of all things and the reality of what stood before them. And when Ezra returns to lead, this, lead a revival, Again, he finds many of them compromised. Nehemiah leads this movement to rebuild the wall, and he discovers perpetual unjust activity. Lending practices that would lead them to enslaving their own people. It was injustice through, injustice through and through. The cycle 
that led them into exile, it's very much still happening. They are very much still in exile. Nothing had changed. This is showing us, I think, the truth of the human condition. This is where we are, where your neighbors are at. Apparently, even the devastating effects of the exile, Nebuchadnezzar coming in with all his armies and power, did not accomplish a transformation of the heart. Didn't change the human condition at all. Even the drastic consequences didn't have any effect on the inner level of the human heart. Israel's problem before the exile was that their heart was hardened towards their God. They were chasing after other lovers, resulting in rebellion. The problem after the exile, exactly the same thing. Their hearts were hard. They were chasing after other things. What this tells us is that those promises that Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, these promises that the elders had as they left Babylon had yet to be fully realized. That even though the Israelites are now back in their land, they're still in exile. Spiritually speaking, the exile continues until... If you turn to the New Testament, you begin to read the stories of John the Baptist leading this movement, again, of repentance and of holiness. He's baptizing people in the Jordan. What, what happened at the Jordan? The exiles come home. They cross the Jordan. John the Baptist is leading this movement This new return from exile, repentance and forgiveness. And he knew, John knew, that what the covenant, God's covenant people needed wasn't a new temple, wasn't a new wall, it wasn't a leader to pull their hair and make them do anything. What they needed was they needed new hearts. They needed hearts that could truly respond to God's love and grace with faithfulness. They needed this kind of transformation that was not possible by any command or rule or any effort of mankind. This could only be accomplished by the work of Jesus Remember the disappointment of the elders, the dedication of the temple? The glory hadn't come. The glory, of the, the glory of the Lord would not return to that temple until Jesus walked in to be greeted by Anna and Simeon. And at that moment, the glory of the Lord had returned to Israel. God was dwelling amongst his people. And that is, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is on a mission to be with his people. 
No amount of building projects, law keeping, could possibly accomplish what he freely offers, what he freely gave, what he freely chose to bring us. He offers us, you and I, your neighbors, your coworkers, he offers a new heart. He offers to take up residence with us and to give us grace, the empowerment to pursue him faithfully. That thing that they tried to enforce by fencing around the law, he offers grace and empowerment to actually do it. To grow into Christ-likeness. The author of Hebrews in chapter 8 says this. Hebrews chapter 8, looking at verse 1. Now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jump down to verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as, that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no need or occasion for the second. And then the author of Hebrews, he quotes Jeremiah 31, that promise, that same hope that they had in their return from exile. He quotes Jeremiah 31, and this is what it says. Now being fulfilled in Jesus on your behalf for us. He says, uh, Hebrews 8, looking at verse 8 through 12. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, landed them in Babylon. And, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each other each one his neighbor and the other one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them till the greatest. Verse 12, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's the end game. That's where this whole thing is going. There will be a day when you don't even need to teach or instruct your neighbors, lead your neighbors to know God because they will know him. Elsewhere it says, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like waters the seas. Not just fall on the temple, the whole earth will see the glory of the Lord. He's on a mission to make all things new, to restore the heavens and the earth. He will make all things right. But just like those returning exiles, on this side 
of the ascension. We have hope. We have grace with empowerment. But still, things are not right. Things are not the way they should be. Several of the New Testament authors, they, they see this and they call us, they, the way they talk about the church is as a, exiles and strangers. Just like the children of Israel. Exiles and strangers. The exile is over, and yet it's not. We are still waiting and awaiting our king to come and to rule and to reign on the earth. The question then is, how do we live? What does that mean for us? That's, I always ask that question. What does that mean for us now? What do we do with this? Certainly, we don't go around pulling people's hair and beating them, like Nehemiah. Just so you know, that's not the answer. No. I think First Peter actually lays out what we do. First Peter chapter 2. Let's start at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who have called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Why has he chosen you? Why has he called you a people of his own possession? Going right back to that prophecy from Jeremiah so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into, into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Exiles, strangers, keep your conduct. Again, in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he says this, looking at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you for, uh, if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason of the hope, reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Exiles, strangers, people of hope with a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone, live in a way that provokes questions. Proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. Talk about him often. Always. This excellent one who has brought us out of darkness into marvelous light. Has he done that for you? Is that your story? That you were brought out of darkness into marvelous light? Then we should talk about it all the time. 
We should bring that up regularly in all of our conversations. That should be the thing that marks us as unique. There should be such a hope and a confidence, even as exiles and strangers in us, that people begin to ask questions. Things are going crazy, but you seem hopeful. What's up? Then are you prepared to make an answer? I'm going to pray and close. God, we thank you for these stories of sometimes messed up men and women. God, these stories of faithfulness and failure. God, I thank you that they teach us, they lead us, they instruct us on how to hope for you, how to long for you, how to wait for you. God, I pray for each and every one of us that we would have such a vision, such a a picture of how far you have brought us out of darkness into marvelous light, of the depths that you have gone to pursue us, that we would have a picture of the one seated at the throne, the right hand of the throne of God, and yet laying his life down to bring us into his presence, to make a way for us and to invite us to partner with him. Jesus, give us that picture. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name.